A quote from Mark Twain to begin. It ain't those parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand that bother me. It ain't the parts I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do that, that bother me. And I think that's probably true of all of us to some degree or other. That certain parts of the Bible are hard. They're hard, maybe hard simply to understand. That's one thing that's addressed there. But the ones we do understand are sometimes hard to receive. Hard for us to believe and take God at his word and say, God's speaking the truth. Let God be true. And every man a liar. Let God be true. And every man a liar. What do you struggle with most in the Bible? What bothers you most about what's taught in Holy Scripture? Or maybe a different way of asking it, a healthier way possibly of asking it. What mysteries revealed in the Bible are you both keen and uneasy to know? What has God revealed? It's like, that's interesting, but that's scary and hard as well. And I think as Christians, we have to be honest. Not everything in the Bible is just low-hanging fruit that's all delicious and that we want. God says things. God is such, which is really the truth of the whole thing. God is such that he is who he is. He didn't take a poll among the Christians and say, how shall I be? What would you like to see in your God? I'll make sure I exhibit some of those things. Right? God does what he wants. He's God. And that makes us nervous. Not only it's sinners, to be sure. As sinners, it's horrifying. But even as God's own people, it makes us uneasy. It makes us uneasy. And, and it should. God should make us uneasy, even to the point of fear. That we would fear and be in awe of this God, but who gives us his goodness and grace and pledges of that in Jesus Christ himself. So again, what mysteries revealed in the Bible are you both keen and uneasy to know? For a lot of folks, the doctrine, the teaching of the Bible on election and predestination is one of those things that makes them uneasy. They don't like it, they don't like to talk about it, they don't like to think about it, and probably the reason is not election, but reprobation. It's not the election that's the problem, typically, although we can run into problems there. It's, it's the other side of it. It's if God chose some to salvation, what about the rest? What about this other group over here? And then, you know, we get doctrines of double predestination, which is certainly true uh, in the Bible, though it can be construed badly. And the, but the truth of the matter is, the world hates that. Okay, just put it down. The world hates the doctrine of election and reprobation, hates it, scorns it, mocks it, that's what it does. But too often the church hates it as well, because the world, to that degree, is our master, or our emotions are our idol, and we just can't imagine this, let God be God. We have to tell him what to do. we got better ideas. Like we were watching or for theologizing a few weeks back, um, Bart was his first name, Compolo, Bart Compolo. And he, he starts uttering things that the Bible says about God. He says, well, I can do better than that. <laughs> I, can, I can, so why deal with God if, I, if he's substandard? If he's doing stuff I don't like, I'll just go over here and do my own thing. And forget about God. Well, there you go. That's the heart of idolatry. I can do better than that. Not letting God be God, but seeking to be God oneself. Election is one of those doctrines, and particularly reprobation, that get people uneasy. And so, therefore, it's often not preached. It's often not taught. Partially, maybe, because it wants to be avoided because it makes people uneasy, or maybe partially because it's just not believed on a part of the minister either, um, when it comes down to it. 
Christian, have you ever heard a sermon on reprobation? Maybe you have a few months ago when we were in Romans 9, but you're going to hear one today. And the reason you're going to hear one today is because the Scripture teaches it. It's in the Bible. And it's my job as a minister, and your job, all our jobs as Christians, to believe what God has given us. Let God be true, and every man a liar. Reprobation, the word reprobation, it's the, so the, do, the doctrine of the other side of election, maybe we call it that way. When God elects unto salvation, he elects, uh, I think with sin in view, out of sinfulness, out of death, in Christ Jesus, unto life, and he's chosen those who will come. Nose for nose, person for person. And in the end, when, when, when salvation is finally achieved and brought into existence in its entirety, new heavens and new earth, all of the elect, not missing a single one, will be redeemed, will be the sheep. And all of the reprobate, nose for nose, every single one of them, will be condemned. And there will not be anyone in the middle. That's, that's easy enough. Reprobation comes from reprobare, which means to reject Okay, so the doctrine of reprobation, as it's historically called, is really the doctrine of rejection. God rejecting certain people for salvation. I'll take a step aside and say, some people like to say, well, there is a doctrine of election, but the Bible doesn't teach a doctrine of reprobation. And I think, well, but anyone who thinks must. Anyone who thinks must. Okay, there's some doctrine of reprobation to be taught just by thinking about it. You say, listen, logic doesn't apply. So we're talking about God. Say, well... If we're talking about God, that must mean we're thinking about God. And if we're thinking about God, we must be logical. Or we'll fall, certainly fall into error. It doesn't mean logic is sure and leads us in the truth every time. Well, not necessarily. But we can't think otherwise. You can't get into water without getting wet. You can't think without logic. So for anyone to say, listen, we don't need the tool of logic. Let's leave that off. The Bible clearly talks about election, but not about reprobation, which is false. Uh, but suppose that were true, then we don't need logic to fill in this other side and talk about God actually purposefully passing over people uh, so that they would eternally be damned according to his plan. But that's what the Bible says. And I think as we think about it, we have to arrive at something like that as well. Logic is important for us to think about what the Bible says. Hasn't, hasn't God given us that duty? to think about what he has revealed so that we can understand and rejoice in it. We're to process it. That's what theology is. Our processing and thinking about what God has revealed in nature and also in Scripture. So, reprobare is to reject and hardening, right, that's, and we'll get into that specifically here in this text, hardening is to petrify, to make, you know, to make like a rock. Um, and of course, in our, in the Bible, it's figurative, right? I mean, um, the, the making of a rock or the, the hardening of the heart means to make dull, obtuse, or blind. To cause someone difficulty in understanding or in comprehension. Okay? To make it so they don't understand. That they can't see or understand. That would be what, what hardening is. Reprobation is part of God's eternal plan. Hardening is part of God's temporal work to achieve that end. So reprobation is something in God, just like election is eternal, right? Unconditional election, we've gone through, we've gone through the canons of Dort, we've gone through Romans, you've got plenty of stuff on election here in the last, you know, handful of months and couple years. Okay, election is not something that's like in history, right? It's something that in God's mind in eternity, he's making decisions about when he creates what he's going to do. So election is eternal, and the decree of reprobation is just as eternal. 
<laughs> it's God's decree, and it's God's decree relative to those who would save, election, and relative to those who would be damned, reprobation, those who would be rejected. And then in history, there's a hardening process that God goes on. We'll talk about that a little bit here, even in our text, where God hardens sinners unto condemnation. Now, when God, just as a note here, when God finds anybody, as it were, finds us hanging out here on earth doing our thing, what's, what kind of condition are we in? Dead in trespasses and sins is the condition we're in. We're all dead in Adam. So God has to do a specific work of regeneration to make someone a believer. He, he makes them over. There's an ontological making over, of making over in their being. Does he have to do that to harden a sinner? In other words, are these kind of parallel lines, or are they, I uh, um, can't think of the right word, where it's the same on both sides, um, like a triangle? Symmetrical. symmetrical, thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a symmetrical work of God, the, the redemption of the elect and the condemnation of the reprobate. And the answer is absolutely not. Because sinners are already on their way to hell, willingly. God gives them over. There are lots of ways God hardens hearts. And typically it's not taking a soft heart and making it hard. It's taking a hard heart and giving it up to its own sin to get harder. As its own judgment and its own sin. They're not parallel, though election and reprobation in eternity are. Okay? They're all part of the, the decree of God. God's eternal decree, which is God's plan going to be put in action. That's what we mean by eternal decree. God's, whatever choices, as it were, God has made that he's going to do, and the plan of action that will come to pass... Is his decree, and his decree includes both election, those who will be saved, and reprobation. So in that sense, they're parallel. But as far as how it works out in history, it's not parallel. God has to do a lot more specific work in a sinner to bring them to salvation than simply to harden one already on his way happily and deliberately to hell. So scripture expressly teaches these doctrines, and we must preach them to the glory of God and for the exaltation of Jesus Christ as they are revealed. So first, Israel's current place, right, as we kind of get to Israel here in chapter 11, Israel's current place in redemptive history and in the New Covenant. Okay? Now, we can think of Israel as this nation, right? This nation that God called, called Abraham and his sons and, and made a people out of them, and they're a nation, and, and they had the land, and they went down to Egypt, and they had 40 years of wandering, they went back into the land, and hung out there for a while, had some kings, and after they had some judges, and sinned a bunch, and God wiped them out in the north, and God wiped them out in the south, and off they went into exile, and then they came back and had their problems, and finally the Lord Jesus Christ came to that people. That's the nation of Israel. Now, as Christ did his work, he opened up that nation, all the promises and covenant promises of that nation and curses, to the world. It wasn't just Israel then that God had known once the new covenants opened in Jesus Christ, but all the peoples of the world are brought into this work that God had been doing through the generations. And so the question then, and the question of course Paul has here in chapters 9 through 11, is well, what about Israel after the flesh? What about the nation who largely doesn't believe in Messiah? What about the Jews who've rejected their Messiah, and what about all the Gentiles who have received him? What do we make of this? And of course, that's what Paul's handling here. So Israel's, as a nation, as a people that way, not as this covenant body that we're a part of, not meaning it in that fuller sense, but in the national, ethnic sense, this people, um, they're all circumcised and they have this, the old covenant people. Uh, what, what are we to think of them in the current situation in the new covenant? In the current situation is they're rebellious and ripe for judgment. That's, that's, the, that's what we get. So, look at verses 21 through 25 in chapter 11. 
For God, if God did not spare the natural branches, the, 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 the Jews, ethnic Jews in this, in this branch, in this olive tree, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness on you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Uh, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, there's the key, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them again again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back in to their olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Here it is, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. God says, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. But there's a remnant out of that disobedient and contrary people that he has saved. And that's a matter of the election of grace. God electing certain Jews out of this mass of unbelieving Jews, out of this mass of disobedient Jews that are hardened for a while, but not all of them. Right? Paul says, I'm one of them. And there, there are a number like me, and God has, even this generation, a remnant of believing Jews out of the whole of the nation an ethnic reality that is Judaism. We can see that the problem that's going on at the beginning of chapter 10, listen to this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer is for them, that is the, the, the Jews, that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, which is literally the zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They have zeal. Okay, they have excitement. They're, they're after something. They're trucking. They're moving but they're not doing it in accordance with knowledge. And with accordance with knowledge is the knowledge of Messiah given in the Scriptures. They rejected Messiah. And therefore, they're building their own righteousness, uh, not in knowledge, but in ignorance. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to the, God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Having rejected Jesus, they've rejected God's way of salvation. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known the Father. So as they reject the Son, they reject the Father. And therefore we say again and again and again that the unfaithful Jews, unbelieving Jews, do not worship the same God you do. There are historical ties to this God, to be sure, covenantal ties and revelation. But Jesus said, if you're not receiving me, then you don't receive the one who sent me. And if you do receive me, you receive the one who sent me. Okay, the one who sent him is the father, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Okay, so we have this unbelieving, rebellious nation of Israel, some of which are chosen out of that to be saved, but the bulk of them are not at the time, at the time of this writing, and all the way to the present. We can move more on that. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 32 and the 69th Psalm, both, as we read, as far as judgments upon the enemies of God, which he says are Israel. Unbelieving Israel here is the enemy of God. And of course, the first, we were talking about idolatry and kind of persecution a little bit this morning in Education Hour. The first great persecutor of the church is Israel, the nation of Israel. They're the ones who are chasing the apostles around and killing folks. And, and finally, Rome gets, gets you know, the picture a little later on, uh, you know, a few decades later, and they, they add their, themselves to the fight as well. But it is Israel. It is the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, who are the first persecutors of the people of God. The Apostle Paul himself being a prime example of one who thought in his zeal for the Lord and ignorance that these blaspheming Christians need to be gotten rid of by hook or by crook. In 2 Corinthians 3, 
the same thing we read here, you can go look at that, but the, the hardness of Israel, and he's talking about the reading of the law, and uses the, the image of, of uh, Moses coming down the mountain with the covering on his face, so he couldn't be seen, you know, the, the light of his face wouldn't frighten all the people, and he says, well, when, when Israel reads the law, it's like they have that veil over their face, they still can't see what goes on, Israel, Moses is read week by week in the synagogue, um, but there is a hardness that persists, Paul says, to this day still going on. So this hardness that began in rejecting Christ, maybe John the Baptist, but certainly Christ and having him crucified, persists. That same hardness persists persists to this day. And remember, hardness is not seeing, not understanding. A hardness of heart is, is what God giving over to a lack of understanding. They don't get. They're ignorant. Ignorant means without knowledge. Okay? So there's a spiritual knowledge that God gives that they don't have. He hasn't given them, and they're in darkness. Indeed, Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3 in the letters, the unbelieving Jews who think they're Jews or not are called the synagogue of Satan. Okay? So that's the status of unbelieving Jews in the New Testament. That's where they are. Right? They've, they've received these promises. They've received the covenants. They've received the oracles of God. They've kept that and, and actually given it to the world through Jesus Christ and his church. Yet, if they're unbelieving in that, they stand condemned. They're rebellious, and they stand condemned. They are not God's special chosen people that he has a special track for them off somewhere else apart from Christ. There is no track for them apart from Christ, except for rebellion and punishment. But at the same time, they seem to be an incredibly blessed and prosperous people throughout history as well, with lots and lots of persecution um, as well. So... um, we can see it go both directions. God seems to give great blessings to them in a temporal way, but also has hardened them, by and large, where they don't receive Messiah. They won't come to their Christ. They won't bow the knee to the one God has sent, and therefore they are the synagogue of Satan. Israel is under a partial hardening, then, by God. Put upon them by God for God's own purposes. That's what we read in this text. They're, under, they're being hardened. They're under a hardening from God because he's using their hardness to take the message to the Gentiles. He's going to use the Gentiles to bring a message, the message of the gospel back to Israel as well, which we'll see, Lord willing, in weeks coming as we go. There is a remnant chosen by grace and foreknown to be saved out of Israel. That's what the remnant talk is here talking about. But the rest were condemned by God's decree, according to God's design. So this is a look at God's maybe retributive, uh, a response, a response of justice uh, against Israel, who not only killed their Messiah, they rejected him, and so on, rejected the God who sent him. God says, "Okay, well, I'll turn on you in, in, in just wrath." Um, well, of course, it's all the plan of God. But I want to take a step back and say it's not just Israel and, and God's response to Israel's unfaithfulness. We can see this hardening and behind that eternal reprobation. But the Bible teaches it more broadly. There are broader categories of this, and of course, the most significant. Extended plays is talked about just two chapters before in Romans chapter 9. So flip a page or two back. And I'll just read this without too much comment. Um, partially because we've been through it and have had plenty of comments. Um, but also so you can just hear the word of God. Hear what God says and how he says it. And he's not pulling any punches. He's not dancing around this thing like an Armenian theologian trying to say, yeah, yeah, but not really, you know, and all this kind of dancing and shucking and jiving. None of that. It's just straight out and clear like a bell ringing in your ears. So we'll start reading in chapter 9 at verse 10. Even though we could back up before that too, but we've got to get through the sermon. 
And not only so, but also when Rebekah had received children by one man, conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they had not yet been born, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that the purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will, nor exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So, then he has mercy on whom he, whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So we see both the election and salvation based upon the will of God here. This is what God's doing. It's not according to human works. It's not good or bad. Uh, before they were born, it's, it's so that God's purpose according to election might stand. God's election is driving this thing. Okay, Paul couldn't be any clearer about it. It's not about Jacob. It's not about Esau. It's about God driving this thing. He says, oh, and have you thought about Pharaoh? For this very reason I raised you up, to glorify my name and show my power. Not that you should be saved. Not that I should offer you an opportunity of salvation. Not so you can exercise your free will and come get saved. None of that. This is why I raised you up, Pharaoh. Great Pharaoh. Greatest of the men on earth. So that I could show my power in you and my name can be declared among all the earth. That's what you're for, Pharaoh. And, and by the way, I have mercy on whomever I want and I harden whomever I want. God says it straight out. Why can't Christians say that? We're in a bad spot where Christians can't repeat the Bible and feel good about it on particular doctrines. We all have issues in certain texts. Ah, you mistake that. You might misunderstand it. Okay, but we realize just from the argument and the questions, Paul's a really good teacher, using questions to make sure that we know we're stepping along with him, we're moving along with him. And he says, is there injustice in God here? Is this, is this unrighteous of God to do this? Well, would it be unrighteous of God to give Esau a fair chance? And Esau just said, sorry, God, don't want it. God said, oh, shucks, well, I tried. Is that what we're talking about? Is that the injustice in God? Would anyone call that injustice? Would that be on the list? How unjust of God to give Esau a chance who denied it? That's not where the injustice would even conceivably be. The injustice is that saying, well, Jacob and Esau had no choice in the matter. They are, they're going to be what God, what God decreed they'd be. Exactly. That's where the rub is. That's where the issue is where Paul says, is there injustice with God? Let me keep reading because there's more. Paul gives us a, a rationale, not just for Jacob and Esau, the elect and reprobate, not even for just Pharaoh, this guy, power that God raised up for his glory, but for everybody, elect and reprobate, as we get into this next little section. Verse 19, For you will say to me then, who, uh, how does he, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, how God judge anybody, they're just doing what he's decreed they do. He's decreed that Esau would be wicked, and Esau's wicked, so how does he judge him? He's decreed Pharaoh be raised up in, in pride and sin, and that's exactly what Pharaoh does, so how does God judge him? Right, that's, the, that's the question being asked here. He will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will the thing that is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? 
to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not just of the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. We're getting back into what Paul's major issue there is, trying to understand the Jews and Gentiles in the New Covenant and why the Jews haven't responded and the Gentiles have. He said, it's, it's all about God. God's elected this, right? God elected the Jews who would believe. He elected the Gentiles who would believe. He hardens whom he wants. It's all about his decree. It all comes back to that. That's what Paul's teaching here in this text. Expressly teaching in this text. Not that we have to surmise and do our own logical work and figure out a doctrine that we do that. But there's expressly taught material here that shows God hardens people. God has raised up people for this very purpose, that they would be hardened and glorify him in their condemnation, even as the elect would glorify him in their redemption. And sing his praises for being redeemed and sing his praises, Christians, for the rejection of the reprobate and the condemnation of them based upon their own sin and the justice of God. We'll spend eternity... Praising the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, not just for the salvation of the elect. We will spend eternity praising God for the damnation of the reprobate as well. Praise be to God for all these things, even if we can't quite figure out emotionally how to make that work now, or intellectually as well, though I don't think that's the hard part. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's we'll read a couple of verses here to see. It's not just, it's not just this big meanie Paul. Because um, he's clearly the big meaning of the New Testament, and it's not just him who, you know, has these doctrines of election and reprobation. But we find it goes through all of the authors of the New Testament, uh, in particular, which is what we're just kind of looking at this morning. First Peter chapter two, talking about coming to Jesus Christ, the living stone. Here also being verse four, you come unto him, a living stone rejected by man, and uh, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, in other words, you are the temple. You are the living temple of God. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But here's this. So, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Get ready for it. Grab your socks. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Who destined them to that disobedience and unfaithfulness? Nobody else. Nobody else did it. God destined them for that. That's, that's their end. The end of the wicked is the doom of the wicked, the, the Proverbs tells us. Here we have just that. God's destined them to stumble over Christ and be crushed by him. Flip over to Jude. Say Jude chapter 4, but that doesn't work because Jude has one chapter. It's easy, therefore easy to miss. As you flip it by right in front of Revelation. It's... You see to read down it all, but verse 4 and verses 12 and 13 are good enough for us. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality 
and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now down to verse 11. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain, and have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. It's like this, it's the same thing that has happened in Israel before, the same kind of wickedness. These are the hidden reefs, or the, the nasty spots, at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Remember, long ago, they were designated for that condemnation. And this is, again, this is Todd. God has all this in mind. None of this is a surprise to God. God's not figuring out on the fly who's saved and who's not. Neither is he, like, trying to rubberneck it down there in the history and figure out who's going to believe and who's not and then make his elective, like, choices based upon what we've done all that mess. God has destined some for life, the elect in Christ Jesus, chosen by grace. And the rest, he has passed over. He's left in their own wickedness. He's left them to their own devices, which is what they want. He's given them over to their own sins in which they're hardened, and he's destined them to that from all eternity. Finally, turn to Matthew chapter 11. I mean, surely Jesus doesn't talk about this. Uh, maybe Paul, Peter, uh, Jude, we don't even know that guy. His name's Judas anyway. We're not so sure we can trust him. But, but Matthew here records the words of Jesus for us. And Jesus has something very, very similar to say. We'll start reading at verse 11. I'm sorry, yes, chapter 11 and verse 11 of Matthew. And he's referring to them, their response to John the Baptist. Who John was, and his, his, his ministry to Israel, right? This is right back in the midst of the ministry of Christ to Israel, or the ministry of John before that to Israel. We'll just start reading in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no greater than John the Baptist. You got the best prophet there was. The greatest of all the Old Testament prophets is the one that came and spoke to you, Israel, in this generation. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, but if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He, is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But what shall I compare this generation? What To what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, but you did not mourn. You got like a bunch of childish things, people accusing each other back and forth and being selfish. That's what this generation's like. A bunch of silly children uh, in the marketplace uh, antagonizing each other. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they would not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! Uh, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, not faithful cities, not Israelite cities, right? these are Gentile cities he's talking about, they would have repented long ago with sackcloth and ashes. Israel, you're hard! Chorazin, Bethsaida, you're hardened in your hearts! even to the point where the vile Gentiles would repent before you do, is what Jesus is telling them. 
But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you, not, uh, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Not high marks. And at the time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Did you get that? Jesus is praising his Father for hiding these things, hiding the truth from those he wanted to hide it from, and revealing it to babes. And he says, I can see the wisdom is the proud and the wise. They don't get it. They're lost and blind in their own wisdom. But the helpless and the babes, they see what's going on by God's mercy. And this is God's will. Praise you, Father, for doing this, for such is your gracious will. He goes on then. I can find my place. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Again, we have sovereign grace in the hands of Jesus. I'll reveal myself to whom I want, and it'll be revealed. The Father has given me that. And then he has these wonderful words. Come to me, all you labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, that you may find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden light. Okay, well, he's already said some heavy stuff here. Heavy judgment upon Israel, and the towns of Israel, where he did all his great works, and the condemnation coming for them. And he praises his Heavenly Father for hiding these things from the wise and revealing them to babes. And he says, I know the Father, and the Father knows me, and I'll let you know him if I want to let you know him. Now, come unto me. And that's how the Bible talks regularly. God is sovereign over who will come. You are not. Now come. Okay? God, God has decreed who will come. Who He's revealed these things to. Whom He's hidden these things from. Now come. Sinner, won't you come? God calls you, won't you come? Jesus Christ has come. He's made the provision of His cross. In the empty tomb, won't you come? Everything has been done. The feast has been laid. Come on and eat. No, I got something to do. I got to go do some business. I got a friend's house to go to. I got to go bury somebody. Right? Sinners have all kinds of reasons. They can even be good reasons not to come. But this is how God lays it out over and over again in the scriptures. He's absolutely sovereign. He is God eternal. He decides what happens. Now come. Won't you come? And in that invitation, we spot not only the heart of God and his generosity, unthinkable generosity. But we also see the hardness of our own hearts. That we wouldn't come. That though the feast is spread, and the Master says, come, I've made ready. We say, I don't care. I don't care. And when it comes down to the nation of Israel in this time, what's the Master going to do? What's the Master of the vineyard going to do after they've killed all the messengers and finally his son? He's going to kill those murderers and burn their city and give the kingdom to another people. Exactly what we see going on in Romans chapter 11. So the Bible dovetails here very well and helps us understand God's plans with Israel, including the hardening that goes on. Including the hardening. Now, it's just hardening. They're wicked. They've rejected Christ. They've been disobedient. You bet. 
So the hardening is in time and based upon their own, their own hardness of heart, but it all goes back to the decree of God. It all goes back there. We don't get to protect God from that. He doesn't feel any need to protect himself from it. Now, he has sent his son, Jesus Christ. He's opened salvation. Behold, he stands at the door and knocks, O church. Let him in. Have fellowship. He'll come and have fellowship with you. We herald that to you as the church. It's not just an invitation to the world to come into Jesus Christ. It's an invitation to the church to come and commune with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our salvation, who is our righteousness, and who is our life, as God has decreed and sent him for us. Now, how do we respond to this? Two questions. How how is it that people respond to this? Why not respond like Jesus in Matthew 11? How about that for starters? How about you say, I praise you, Father of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, and you have revealed them to beings. Praise you, God, for this is your gracious will. How many people say that when when they come across the doctrine of reprobation, of God hiding things from people and hardening their hearts? No, we have all kinds of things to say, but they don't sound like Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, people say, doesn't this make God a tyrant? Is God an eternal tyrant? I say, let the wicked say so. Let him say it. Shout it out, wicked. You think God's a tyrant. You can shout it out all the way to hell in eternity. That you think God's a tyrant when you just are hard-hearted and won't submit to God who's God. It is God who's made you, not you yourself. You think God's a tyrant? Have at it. We know in Christ Jesus, God is our Heavenly Father. And praise be to His name for hiding these things from whoever He wants to hide them from, and to revealing them to whoever He would reveal them to. Praise be to His name for it. Let the wicked run their wicked mouths until God shuts them by His power and His justice. So does this make God a tyrant? I don't think so. It's just God being God doing exactly what he wants among the hosts of heaven and the sons of men. Does this knock man off his idolatrous throne? Maybe that's a, a, you know, a leading way of asking that question. Does this doctrine knock man, mankind, men, women, children, off of their idolatrous thrones that they themselves are God? I decide for myself what I do, thank you very much. This is America, Jack. It's a free country, right? We do what we want. Throw it all back in God's face. We are the masters of our souls, the captains of our fate. Isn't that right, individualist, free willer? Or should the clay not answer back to the potter? Should there be some humility there for us saying, God is the potter. God be God, we are the clay. Praise his name. Yes, this does knock man right off his idolatrous throne and puts his face in the dirt right where it belongs. Christian, right where it belongs. So that God himself would lift us up in Christ Jesus. Not that we lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps and our own work and all the things that people like to tell themselves. It's an issue of grace. And if it's an issue of works, it's no longer an issue of grace. And it's an issue of grace. Therefore, it's not an issue of works. It's something we receive and we glory and we say, praise you, God. I don't even get it, but praise be to your holy name. Thank you for humbling me from my throne, my, my self-throne, my, my way of ruling the earth as if I'm God, for humbling me to the dirt and saying, no, you are God. I am but your creation and your person in Christ Jesus. 
Is this even revealed? I think a lot of people would, you know, would think about this, the double predestination. We got, okay, the, the election on one side, but the reprobation, is that even talked about in the Bible? Well, it is. Okay, we've seen that it is not hanging on in the Old Testament. It's there too. Um, in fact, it's there more than it's in the New Testament. But it's there. It's taught. It's revealed. Hath God said? If God has said it, Christian, you are required to believe it. God has spoken. Your job is to receive. Right? The, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Okay, the believing part, which often gets you know short shrift and beat up uh, by R.C. Sproul and others like him, good enough um, for for what this purpose there. But God has revealed it. You are to believe it. I'm to believe it. We are to believe it. We're to work it out together and understand the word of God, not question God, because yet again, let God be true and every man a liar. It's revealed. Therefore, we must repeat it, we must teach it, and we must learn to glory in it. We must learn to glory in what God has revealed about himself. And if we have a hard time glorying in it, if we have a hard time, if your heart doesn't want to just... Make your hands lift up and your voice sing and praises to God because of reprobation, because of those rejected by God. Then we need to seek God's grace that we'd be there. We need to seek God that He would teach us how to rejoice in these things that He has revealed. So, on seeking to glory in God in these trying doctrines, these trying teachings or revelations in the Scripture, first beg the Lord to conform your heart to His Word. Beg the Lord to conform your heart, your feelings, your desires, your mind to what he's revealed. Not the other way around. We're really good at conforming the scriptures to how we feel. But our prayer here should be, God, conform me to what you have revealed, what you have shown us in your word. Indeed, not my will be done. I think I remember someone saying, but thy will be done. You have revealed this, God. Show us and make us glory in what you have revealed. Secondly, seek those hidden affections or those deeper hidden fears that drive you. Right? Oftentimes it's not just the doctrine that's the problem. It's the things under that. It's the way we are and the things that we fear and the things that we cherish. And those are sometimes hard to figure out what those are. Pray that God will show you. Pray that God will reveal underneath the surface what's really the issue here. And that you would be able to repent of that. See it, and, be, and, and, and also be in counsel with other Christians talking about these things. We have to struggle through these doctrines together. It's not all ticker tape parade every time every doctrine in the scriptures brought up. We've got to figure out and, by God's mercy, be conformed to the scriptures. And we do that together. We do it in conversation and in prayer together. And then finally, in this regard, as far as coming to grips with and rejoicing and glorying in a doctrine like reprobation, remember this. God is God. I am who I am, Moses. Tell them I am sent you. God is God. Now, it seems trite and silly, but listen. Let God be God. Of course, on the one hand, you can't stop him. So, saying that's silly. But on the other hand, there's a way in which we fight against God being God in our minds. And we want different things. And just like Campola says, I could do better than that. So, scrap this God. I'll go over here and do something better. There's nothing better than the true living God. But he is the true and living God. He's not the figment of your imagination. And if he is, then you're worshiping an idol. And God has to cleanse us from all that idolatry. And there's plenty of it in our own hearts and minds anyway. And this is part of it. When we run up against the doctrine clearly taught in Scripture that we just don't like. 
that's a view of an idol right there. It's an indication that our hearts are not in the right place. And the, and, and the, the, the fundamental issue here is God is God. We don't get to tell them what that's like. God, you're God. Do it this way. You're not Godding correctly. He's doing it just fine. And we let him be that. We just self-consciously let God be God. We are his people. We will receive his truth. Now, by way of conclusion, there are parts of the Bible that are uncomfortable. There are plenty of parts. Of, there are parts of the Bible that are hard to figure out, period. Yeah, there's those out there, too. But the ones that we do understand clearly, there are parts that are uncomfortable, that make us uncomfortable. Christian, confess that to the Lord. Tell God, I don't know, but I don't like this. I don't like what you're saying here. I don't, maybe I don't get it. Please help me get it. Help me like it. Help me understand what you revealed, that I can glory in you, the true and the living God, who has been revealed in Christ Jesus through the Scriptures. Confess that to the Lord is a sin of unbelief. Not necessarily that you maybe don't intellectually believe the doctrine of justice or of, of, of um, reprobation, but emotionally you don't believe it, or you're not supporting it. Something along those lines, we might not get it intellectually, that's a sin too. We should know what God has revealed, but we should also love what God has revealed. And if we don't, that's the time to confess our sin. Right to the Lord, right there. Remember that Christ died for the elect. God has given us salvation in him, according to his eternal counsel. Jesus says, come unto me, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, Christ says, and my burden is light. Believe that. Rest in the one whom he has sent. You don't have to get it all. It doesn't have to feel all right, but he has sent his son, Jesus Christ. Start there. Rest in him. Seek wisdom in him. Believe and rest in Christ Jesus. And then profess the sovereignty of God. Tell your Christian friends about the sovereignty of God. You have to make it the conversation point and twist the knife every time. But Christians need to hear this glorious stuff. And they don't hear it, by and large, in their churches. Where they do hear it is in conversations from faithful Christians with the Word of God in their hand and in their mouth and in their heart, saying, look at this amazing God we serve. Have you read this? So we rest in Christ Jesus, the one who has sent, and we profess and give away the sovereign grace. And we also profess Him as the awesome judge of the world. With fearsome wrath, for the Scriptures certainly present God like that. And so again, the call goes to you this morning as we close. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Is He your Savior? Have you rested in Him? Do you rejoice in the salvation, full, free salvation in Christ Jesus? If so, praise the Lord. Rejoice in that. Proclaim Him. And if not, flee to Him. For His wrath is awesome. And His justice is fearsome. It's either wrath or grace. In the Lord Jesus Christ, may it be grace to everyone who hears these words, and amen.